Most of us can think of a time where we've had a mountaintop experience. It could have been at a camp. Maybe it was at a retreat. Sometimes it's a moment that was just so awesome. Our experience it was so great, we wanted to linger there longer. We didn't want that moment to end where we would have to come down off the mountain and back to the, the valley of life where everyday, uh, day-to-day living seems to take place. Last week we saw where Jesus had asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the, the Son of God. As we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 9, what we're going to see is that as all of this is taking place, as this question is swirling around, As Peter said, you are the Christ, the promised one. Jesus told him, my father has revealed this to you. And what we're going to see today is something was revealed to the disciples by the father uh, because he's going to show them that Jesus is indeed the Christ. In Luke 9.22, Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up. On the third day, and, and this was a revelation that was confusing to them. It was something that, that brought fear into their minds. How can this be? How can you be the promised Messiah, and yet you're going to be beaten and killed? And so as Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, as he's told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, where I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to die. And a part of the passage we skipped over last week because we were focused on the resurrection at Easter is where Jesus then said to them, and I want you to take up your crosses. I want you to follow me. And so as they're headed to Jerusalem, as this group goes, Jesus is going to prepare them for what is happening. And he does this by having a prayer retreat. They pull off the path. They go up onto a mountainside. Jesus invites a small inner part of the, the circle of the disciples to go up with him, and he leaves nine of them down in the valley, but he takes three of them up onto the mountain. And this is where we pick up the passage in Luke nine twenty eight, because Jesus is going to reveal something to them that will confirm who he is as well as to help prepare them for what is to come. Luke 9, 28 through 31 tells us, Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James, and he went up onto the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. Two of the other Gospels have this same account, and Matthew's version tells us his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And Luke tells us, and behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, what we're reading about here is called by theologians the transfiguration. And it's an attempt to describe the indescribable. It's like when you read the book of Revelation and and John, who had been taken into heaven, tries to put into words the glory of heaven, what he saw there. And so here, there's an attempt to describe the indescribable. And and this transformation is an unveiling. Now, what I want you to understand, a mistake sometimes people make is they think the transfiguration is where Jesus was transformed. But this is literally an unveiling. Jesus doesn't change here. This is who Christ really is. And what happens is we're given a glimpse as to who Jesus is. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 tells us of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Peter had said, you are the Christ. A word that means the Messiah, the promised one of God. And here what God does, God the Father in heaven cracks the curtain just a tiny bit. And he lets some of the light shine out as to who Jesus is. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that there will be no sun, S-U-N, in the New Jerusalem. In the eternal heavens, we don't need the sun like we have in our day because the Son of God will be the one that the light emits from. Jesus had said in Luke 9, 27, But I say to you truthfully that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He was speaking of the disciples, and he said, Some of you guys are not going to die until you get a glimpse of the kingdom. And here's the fulfillment. Three of the disciples are with Jesus up on the mountain, and they, they get to see the glory of Jesus as he will be in heaven. You can read Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, and John describes Jesus in this, this just glorious state in heaven. And this is a peak that they get here. The whole world is going to see Christ like this at his second coming. When he returns from heaven with the armies to conquer, it's not going to be as a baby of, of Bethlehem when he comes back to the earth. It is as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the glory of God that is being unveiled as we talk about seeing the glory of Jesus and his return to earth, it's significant that we see it's Moses and Elijah who have returned to the earth here. As you read through the Bible, there are two people whose bodies uh, are, are handled uniquely among all the others. One of those was a man by the name of Moses. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 6, it says that when Moses died, God buried his body in the valley of Moab, and no man knows where his grave is. Nobody had ever seen uh, the dead body of Moses. And Elijah, you'll remember, did not die like we die. He was, he was taken up into heaven. 2 Kings 2.11 says that as he was walking along, God sent the, the chariot of fire to take Elijah up into heaven alive. Now, even more significant than the, the fact that it's these two that are here is what these two represent. Because they represent the totality of, of the Old Testament. Moses, as you'll remember, is God's lawgiver. Moses is the one who went up onto the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai where God in his glory appeared and he gave to Moses the commandments and the law. Moses is the one who wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament for us. And Elijah is one of the mighty prophets of the Old Testament, not just one of the great prophets, but he's the guy that bookends all of the prophecies. Because in Malachi verse four, chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And as we look at these two talking, we're told what they're talking about because Luke 9.31 says they were speaking with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting to read this in the original Greek text because it, it, it has a very literal reading here that's significant. What Luke 9.31 says in the Greek text is his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem in English, is the exodus of him, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, the exodus that word for departure that you see in most English translations. Well, we know about Moses and his involvement in the Exodus. Moses was the man that God raised up to deliver the people of Israel from the bondage in Egypt. There's a great Exodus that took place as God led them out of slavery in the land of Egypt. 
And as Jesus was about to die on the cross, rise from the dead, and after 40 days ascend into heaven, what we're being told is what Jesus will accomplish is the exodus of his people. This is the, the ultimate exodus, as God will lead his people into the ultimate promised land of heaven. As you read through the Old Testament, Psalm uh, 68, verse 18, and again in the New Testament, Ephesians 4, 8 says, when Jesus ascended into heaven after his death and resurrection, it says he literally led captivity captive. He, it was the exodus of God's people, and it will be the exodus of both Jew and Gentile who, who are believers in Jesus. As the gates of heaven were opened, and we were, we were allowed to come into heaven. What we have here is all of history has shown up in this amazing moment. All of God's revealed plan is, is happening. And, and this is what Luke wants us to understand because the Greek word in Luke 9.31 for accomplish or some translations say fulfillment is plerao. And this is a word that means to bring to completion, to cause to happen in order to fulfill a purpose. To bring to completion the purpose of God. And it's in the future tense in, in the, the Old Testament, in the, in the Greek New Testament here. And what that means is, at this moment of the transfiguration, as he's looking ahead and says, you are going to fulfill the purpose, he's pointing to when you walk into Jerusalem, when you come in and you ultimately go to the cross and you die. And then as you're buried in the tomb and as we celebrated last week, as you rise from the dead three days later and lead captivity captive as you go into heaven, this is the whole plan of God that is being revealed at this very moment. Moses led the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Elijah delivered them from the bondage of idol worship. As you remember up on Mount Carmel as there was the battle with the prophets of Baal. And now we're told how Jesus Christ will die to set a sinful world free from the bondage of sin and death. Galatians 1.4 tells us, He gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Colossians 1.13 tells us, For he rescued us from this domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, I know we're not Baptists, but there could be an amen or hallelujah right here, right? <laughs> but the problem is some of us are half asleep. You're going, this is a lot of deep stuff. And, and that was the problem with the disciples too, because I want you to look at verse 32 and 33. Because it says, now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, kind of like here. But it says, but when they were fully awake, as you are now, they saw his glory and the two men were standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Have you ever said something really dumb? <laughs> Peter does that here, doesn't he? In fact, the Bible helps us out. It says he doesn't know what he's saying. I love Peter. Peter's a guy that has passion. We've seen Peter's one of those guys, whatever he's thinking, he just busts out with. But there are times that the Bible tells us that's not the best thing to do. Uh, Proverbs seventeen twenty eight says, even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, and he is considered prudent. This would have been a great time for Peter to say, I'm not going to say what I'm thinking. Especially given that he was half asleep, he wakes up, he sees this glorious sight. He doesn't, he doesn't really fully, have you ever come out of a kind of a half-sleep stupor and you're like, what's going on? 
And it says that there's this glorious sight. He sees Jesus revealed for who he is. And it says Moses and Elijah are leaving. And, and Peter, he's, he's taking all this in. And, and he goes, Master, it's good that we're here. He says, let me pitch three tents for you guys. Let's just stay here. And you can picture Moses and Elijah walking out. They stop. They turn around. They go, who are these guys? And, and Jesus goes, oh, these, these, are, these are the guys who are going to pick up the mantle that you guys have been carrying. <laughs> these are the ones who are entrusted with taking the message to the world. And they're going, oh, face plant. Oh, Jesus, Really? Peter's going, I love it. Let's stay here. This is so awesome. Let's just linger here. Let's not go down Uh, again. I'm going to pitch tents for you. I'm going to build tabernacles for you guys. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Peter. Because if we had been there in this glorious moment, how many of us would have wanted to stay on the mountaintop? I mean, why go back down to the valley? We've seen a taste of heaven. I don't want to go back. But as, as Peter's saying this, I mean, he's a guy who knows the, the word of God, the Old Testament writings. Maybe he's thinking of Zechariah 14, 16. In Zechariah 14, 16, it says, when the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign of God happens on the earth, it says the people will be dwelling in tabernacles. These are the booths that were built during the Feast of Booths to remind people of when they wandered in the wilderness, they had no home, how God took care of them. And it says the people are going to be dwelling in the glory of God. So, so Peter rightly says, wow, this is, this is a taste of the kingdom. Let's just stay here. Now, there's two problems with what Peter says. The first one is he's, he's forgotten everything Jesus just said about Jerusalem. He says, Jesus, let's just jump over that part about suffering. Let's just jump over that part about you going to die. Let, let, let's not go to the cross. Let's just grab the crown without the cross. But the Bible says without the cross, there could not be the ultimate crown of glory. And it's not just for Jesus. Now, he's at a whole different level than we will ever be. But the Bible tells us as believers that while this present-day world is hard and they're suffering and sacrifice for us, remember, Jesus just talked to them about pick up your own cross, follow me daily. He, he said earlier, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? He says there is a cross for Christians to carry. There is sacrifice and suffering. But he says it is a momentary affliction in this world. Romans 8.18 tells us, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now the second problem here is that Peter wants to build all three of them the same shelters. What he fails to see is the superiority of Jesus. He says we have Moses and Elijah, these great guys, and we have Jesus Listen to what Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 through 6 tell us from the New Testament. It says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by somebody, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and, and, and boast of our hope 
firm until the end. You see, what it says is Moses and Elijah were great men, great prophets, servants of God. But here, friends, we have the Son of God. You remember last week we talked about how people will talk about Jesus, how he's a great moral man, maybe a great teacher, a great prophet. And we saw that those options aren't open to us. As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, what we talked about last week on Easter. And what is being told to us here is Jesus is not on level with the great prophets of old. Jesus is not like the people of old. He is the Son of God. The Father makes this very clear in verses 34 through 36. It says, while Peter was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. You see, a cloud was the symbol of God. As you read through the Old Testament, you see the Shekinah glory of God appearing in cloud. It it overshadowed the temple at one point, and the glory drove people out of that in the tabernacle. His his cloud was what led the people through the wilderness, his presence uh, by day and the pillar of fire at night. And so the, the presence of the cloud here is God. And in Luke 3.22, earlier we saw when God the Father uh, appeared at not physically seen, but his voice was audibly heard at the baptism of his son. In Luke 3.22, Jesus, I mean, God the Father said of Jesus, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. And now for a second time, God the Father affirms who Jesus is. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, as those words were spoken, the disciples would have, would have thought of Deuteronomy. They would have thought of the, what Moses revealed in Deuteronomy 18.15, because these are prophetic words. Deuteronomy 18.15 said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Moses, who's there, was used by God to write words that pointed ahead to the one who was the greatest of all. Not merely a prophet, but as God says here, he is my son. As we talk about Jesus being the son of God, John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We live in a world where people say, Jesus is one among many gods. And that's not what the Bible tells us. When you hear that word only begotten, it's the Greek word monogenes. It's a compound word that literally means the unique one and only God-man. Mono one. There is only one God-man ever. Some of you have a background in Mormonism and you know that you're taught as a Mormon that you can become a God just like Jesus became a God. That is not That is not what the Bible says. That's heresy. There is only one God, Jesus Christ. And this one God said there is only one way home to heaven. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we can't say Jesus is just a good guy, a great prophet, or or a God among gods, as many of the world religions claim. I want you to think of it this way. 
Imagine you're walking down a road one day, and as you're coming down the road, suddenly you come to a point where it branches in multiple directions, and you're not sure which way to go. And so as you're considering your options, you notice there's a crowd of people right there at the, at the fork in the road. And so as you approach the crowd to ask for some directions, what you notice is everybody in this group is dead except for one person. Who are you going to ask directions of? The dead guys or the one who's alive? Now, why do I tell you this story? Well, because think in terms of the world religions. Every founder, every supposed God, every person that is is a part of these religions is dead. Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith. You pick any religion in the world and they're all dead. The only one who is alive is Jesus Christ. So when I come to a point and somebody says, there is only one way home to heaven and I'm the way, I'm going to listen to the guy who's alive, not to the ones who are dead. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When Jesus died, as he was crucified on the cross, it was to cover the penalty of sin and death that we owed. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we celebrated last week and as we talked about the evidence for, Jesus is not dead. He rose from the dead. He showed three days later that he was who he said he was, the Son of God who had conquered sin and death. And now God the Father from heaven says, this is my Son. He affirms what Peter said, you are the Christ. And what the Bible tells us in Acts 4.12 is, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. So if you're here this morning, And you've never come to faith in Jesus. If you've been thinking, well, all roads lead to heaven, you know, I can pick any road. Friends, that's not true. Those roads lead to destruction. Just as the founders of those other religions are dead, those roads lead to death. But Jesus offers us the road to eternal life through faith in him. And he invites you to receive his gift. So Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Now, as God makes this pronouncement that this is my son, did you notice that Moses and Elijah suddenly are removed? You see, what God the Father says is, I want the full focus on my son, Jesus. The disciples had grown so familiar with Christ that they forgot the privilege of who he was to be able to spend time with the Son of God. Now, you and I don't get to see Christ physically today, but we have the privilege of having his word. And we can sit at his feet. We can linger at any time and listen to what he wants to tell us through looking at his word. We have the privilege of talking to him through prayer. And many times we we don't take advantage of these things. And as great as those mountaintop moments can be, we need to be plugged into God and his power and his presence because the reality is we live life down in the valley where things are hard. Verses 37 through 42 tell us on the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd uh, met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions and, and foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him. 
as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving, perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, and he healed the boy, and he gave him back to his father. If you look back at Luke chapter 9, verse 1, there it says that Jesus had given the disciples his power and authority over all the demons. Jesus had given his disciples, the nine of them that were down in the valley, why could they not cast out this particular demon? Well, as you look at the other two transfiguration accounts, we find the answer. Because Matthew 17, 20 tells us, Jesus said to the disciples, you couldn't cast this out because of the littleness of your faith. And in Mark 9, 29, he said, this kind only comes out through prayer. I want you to imagine... um, You've, you've got your, your iPhone or Android or whatever device you use, and, and, and you're sitting here this morning swiping and tapping, and, but nothing's happening. And, and, and you're checking it, you know, is the power button on? Is there a connect? I mean, why won't this phone work? And the problem is, you know that if you haven't plugged that phone in, if that phone hasn't been connected through a power cord to charge up and the battery is dead, that device will not do what it was designed to do. And that's what the Bible tells us about our relationship with God. It says God has given us this power source, this ability to have his his authority and, and to do ministry in and through him. And yet many of us have not plugged into the power. And, and, and we're wondering why when we tap or swipe or nothing is, is working the way it was designed to do. There's, there's a proverb that the Africans have. It says, when two dogs get in a fight, the one that has been eating well wins. When two dogs get in a fight, the one that's been eating well wins. Can you picture that in your mind? I want you to imagine for a moment there, there are two dogs in your life. One, one is this, this spiritual dog, and one is your carnal side of your life, your flesh, okay? And these are two dogs. And now when you think of your spiritual life, how well is it eating? You know, maybe you come to church every couple of weeks. You flip through the Bible occasionally. You might have a time of prayer here and there. And so as you think about how well this this spiritual dog in your life is eating, it looks a little bit like one of those teacup chihuahuas, right? I'm sorry if you have one, but those... uh, uh, Imagine this little rat dog, right? It's it's kind of this, this hairless, shaking, you know, little little dog. So that's your spiritual side, and you're throwing it a snack every now and then. And over here is your carnal side, and it's a 150-pound Rottweiler, right? This thing is bulked out. It's eating well every day. And these two dogs are going to get in a fight. Which one wins? You know, the only way the the Chihuahua wins is if the Rottweiler chokes on it while it's trying to swallow it, right? (laughs) And and so we wonder, why, why do we get in these battles and we seem to lose and lose to sin when we, we should have victory in Jesus? And the problem is, our spiritual side isn't being fed. It's not eating well. And here are the disciples. They've been separated from Christ for, for about a week. The nine of them down in the valley have just been kind of going on and doing stuff based on what they've done before. Do you remember when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000? 
They came back from this great ministry trip. They were excited about all they did. And and Jesus had to bring them to a point of saying, you have to do your ministry in dependence on me. And, and what's happened is they've already forgotten that again. They haven't been plugged in and charging up. They said, well, we, we've been casting out demons. We know how to do this. And Jesus says, you cannot do this without plugging into the power source. And as you look at your life as a believer, God says the same thing to us. And what we see in this passage is how quickly these fights can come. They're not always scheduled. You don't know when these moments are going to happen. When Jesus says, bring the boy to me, Satan says, not so fast. And he grabs the boy and he throws him down in the dirt. The demon seizes him again. The Greek word that is used is literally a wrestling term. And it means there was a throwdown. He throws his boy in the dirt. Now, (laughs) Satan's no match for the Son of God. And so Satan gets defeated. The boy is healed. He's handed back to his father. And verses 43 through 46 tell us, And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to the disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. As everybody's ooing and aahing and wowing, Jesus says, Circle up, sidebar. He says, I want you to hear this. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. It tells us, but they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. And an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. There's, there's this moment of amazement. Jesus reminds them, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. And and they're sitting there going, how? How is this going to happen? We just saw another demonstration of God's power. You're the Messiah. We've seen your glory up on the mountain. How, How are you going to be killed by men? You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And, and you're talking about this humiliating death where you're going to be beaten and stripped and spit on and, and, and die. And speaking of humiliation, think of how Christ felt at that moment as he says to this closest group of followers, I'm going to die. And instead of compassion, there's competition. Well, which one of us gets to be the greatest? Which one's going to take your place? Which one gets the throne? Verses 47 through 49 tell us, But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side, and he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is, is least among you, this one is who is great. John answered and said, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Jesus says, let me me tell you who's great. It's it's a little child. It's, It's somebody who is helpless, dependent, without status, but has faith. And... And as he talks about being like a child, there's a difference, friends, between being childlike and childish, right? He says you're to be childlike. But here the disciples are childish. They're, they're like, uh, you know, playing king of the mountain. Have you ever played that game? I have, four, I have three brothers and there were a bunch of boys in my neighborhood and we would, if there was a dirt pile, we would all climb up on it. 
and you stand at the top, I'm king of the mountain. And, and the goal was to run up and knock that dude off and take the spot. And you'd have this, you know, some of you have played that game. You're throwing each other down and I'm the king. And that's what the disciples are doing. Well, I'm greater than you. And they're, they're, they're wanting to throw others down. And, and John, uh, this time it's not Peter, it's John, right? We're, we're thinking just as they're about to get it, just as the, the truth is sinking in, John goes, squirrel, right? <laughs> Jesus is going, do you get this, guys? And he goes, hey, Jesus, we saw this other guy casting out demons. And, and we told him to stop doing that because we're, he's not one of the 12. He's not in our group, and we're the greatest. In this. And Jesus is doing the face plant now. And he says in verse 50, do not hinder him who is not against you because who is not against you is for you. Friends, let me just say something here about what I see Christians and churches and ministries doing sometimes. We're, we're in competition with each other. We're all on the same team. If you know of another church or ministry or person who is doing God's work and their parking lot is full and their pews are full and, and God is doing great and amazing things through them, praise God. That's not, well, we've got to throw them down and get back on top. We're all the same team. There are enough unsaved people to fill every church in this city and then some. And so what Jesus is telling the disciples here is quit, quit going against those who are doing my work. And as the disciples are hearing this, they, they leave that place and they go on their way to Jerusalem. And we see they haven't yet quite gotten it, have they? Look at what verses 51 through 56 tell us. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they, they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive Jesus because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. James and John, do you remember where they were just a little while ago? They're up on the mountain of transfiguration. And they see Moses and Elijah. And what do you know about Elijah from 1 Kings 18.38? Well, Elijah in 1 Kings 18 was up on, on Mount Carmel battling the, the false prophets of Baal. Remember that? And they said, the way that we're going to know which God is the real God is the one who is able to call down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. That will be the true God. And so the prophets of Baal, remember, had this all-day ceremony. There's hundreds of them. They're doing all this stuff, jumping around, cutting themselves, and nothing happens. Elijah prepares the sacrifice. He has water poured over it. I like to call it making gravy for the sacrifice, right? He says, wet the wood, make it impossible to light this thing on fire. And he prays and it says, fire. It fell from heaven. It consumed the sacrifice. It burned up the stones. It licked up the water. And everybody's response is, Jehovah, Yahweh is the true God. And so as these guys are going along and the Samaritans reject Jesus as the Son of God... They say, well, let's prove you're the son of God. Master, let's smoke them, right? 
Let me call down fire from heaven. The judgment of Jesus is going to burn this place up. It's going to wipe these people out. They're just loaded for bear. They're a lot like Jonah. Have you ever read the the book and seen where when he goes to Nineveh and he was sent there to to call the people to repentance and and to lead this enemy nation to the Lord. And Jonah, he gets all bent out of shape because the people repent. He goes, no, no, this is now supposed to happen. Fire's supposed to fall. You're supposed to burn these people up. And God says, you're more worried about this plant that gave you shade for a day than you are the eternal people I created. And that's the disciples here. They go, we don't like the Samaritans. Remember who the Samaritans are? They're the half-breeds. They're the the mixture of the Jews and the Gentiles. Back in the days of captivity, when Israel was carried away to captivity, the enemy nation brought in some of their people to resettle the land of Israel. And they intermingled and co-married with the people who were left. And the remnant had this mixture of Jewish-Gentile people called the Samaritans. They were a hated half-breed. So as the disciples say this, they're not jealous for the glory of Jesus. They're saying, hey, we don't like these people. Let's just smoke them. Do any of us feel that way about people today? Do do you see some people in the world that you're like, you know, I just hope they go to hell? I hope Jesus smokes those terrorists. I I hope God judges those people. Friends, they are created in the eternal image of God. We need to pray for their salvation. We need to ask God to show his mercy and grace. If anybody had a right to be angry here about the the rejection, if anybody has a right to be angry about our sin, it is God. Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Psalm 145.8 tells us, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Aristotle once said, Anybody can be angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everybody's power. That is not easy. We're about to come to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table, we're reminded of how the anger of God was dealt with in the right way. Because what 1 John 4.10 tells us is, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That, that word propitiation literally means satisfaction. As in satisfying the requirements of God's holy law. It can be illustrated by what happened to a, a factory worker. There was a, a man who was on an assembly line, and, and he was working, and, and the machinery malfunctioned. He got pulled in, and he was horribly mangled. The ambulance took him to the hospital. The, do, the doctors worked fervently. They were able to save this guy's life. But he was, he was partially paralyzed. He lost a, a limb and some, some fingers. And, and, and here's this guy who's, who's broken. And, and there's an investigation done, and OSHA says the, the company's negligent. They didn't maintain the machinery. They were responsible. And so there's a lawsuit filed. And millions and millions of dollars is, is given to this man to take care of his medical needs and his pain and suffering. And, and so according to the law, the satisfaction has happened. But it is the expiation, not propitiation. 
Okay? The law says the requirements of justice have been expiated. So what that means is the letter of the law is fulfilled. This guy has all the money he needs to live. His medical care is taken care of. But there's been nothing done to satisfy this man's wrath. He's, he's broken. He's, he's injured. He's, 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 just, he's angry at this company. Every time he sees a product, hears a commercial, even thinks about what happened, there's this anger, this wrath in this guy. When Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross, the Bible says he propitiated our sins. He not only expiated or paid the penalty that was due, the wages of sin is death. But it says he propitiated God's wrath. He removed the brokenness of the relationship. He restored what had been broken. He brought us to become believers in the family of God. It says when we come to faith in Jesus, we become a son or a daughter of God. We're not on the outside looking in. We've been adopted into the family. God not only took care of the penalty, but he restored the relationship. And as we come to the table today, that is what we remember Jesus coming to do. He came and he died on the cross to pay the penalty of death that you and I owed for our sins. But he also came to remove the wrath. He came to restore the relationship, to make it so that we could become a part of the family, to be adopted as a son, to be adopted as a daughter into God's family. And so in a moment as the elements are passed, you're going to take and hold a piece of bread. That represents the body of Jesus. The body that had to take on flesh and blood so that he could go to the cross and take on our sins. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Jesus had to pay the penalty with a flesh that did not owe the penalty. And that is why God became man and he took our place. And so that's what the bread represents. And the cup represents his blood. It washed away our sins. And so if you're here this morning, if you've never come to faith in Jesus... I invite you this morning to come to faith. As the elements are passed, to say to God, as I take the bread, I'm receiving Jesus as my Savior. As I take the cup, this represents you, Jesus, washing away my sins. I know I can't do it myself, but you did it for me. And so if you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior and you've never done so, as the elements are passed, take and and say to God, I'm receiving you today as my Savior. If you're somebody who's already a believer, as many of us are, this is a time to remember the mercy and grace, the love of God that was demonstrated for us and to say thank you, God, for what you've done. And if you have any sins you haven't yet confessed, to use this time to do that. So you pass the elements for us and take and hold these and we'll take them together in a moment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have the gift of eternal life, the body of Jesus seated in remembrance of him. And as the book of Hebrews, which we heard from today, spoke of Jesus having more glory than Moses. That same book tells us when it comes to the sacrifices offered in the temple, that they too fell short. Because it said the blood of bulls and goats, the sacrifices offered, could not remove the penalty of sin. Only Jesus. Only the God-man. Who John one twenty nine tells us was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world could do that. 
And so here we have a cup representing the precious blood of Jesus that was shed to wash away your sins and mine. Drink it in remembrance of him. Join me as we pray, please. Lord God, we thank you for the reminder of who you are. Just to see the curtain cracked and a tiny bit of the light shining out of who you are. The glorious one, the one we will see in Revelation 1.12 and following that is standing there in heaven. And the Bible tells us we will see you, Jesus, standing as a lamb as if slain. Those marks of your death on the cross are marks of honor that will not be removed but will be on display for all of eternity. We will get to see the marks in your hands and your feet and the, the spear hole in your side because they are marks of your great love for us. As you left heaven to come to earth, as you died in our place to pay that penalty of death that we owed for our sins, we thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. We thank you, God, for the privilege of not only being called sons and daughters when we place our faith in you, but also, God, that you let us be your messengers. Like the disciples who were to be the ones who would carry the news down into the valley and through the world, you've passed that mantle to us today, and so would we be found faithful to do that. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.